Hey guys, it's Chris. Welcome to The Fort. Excited to do this episode today, uh, which will be a little different. Um, I'm doing this one solo and I'm just going to debrief kind of on the last three weeks of the world and how it has impacted uh, the real estate industry. And so we'll talk about some kind of high level data points that we've seen from conversations that we've had from great people across the industry, from lenders developers, people in construction, all different asset types, capital markets, different locations, and try and just kind of paint a picture of where we are today, uh, what that might mean going forward. So here we go. I'll start by just saying I was probably one of the people, I was one of the people that didn't take the coronavirus seriously uh, while it was in the news kind of in January and February. I think most people fall in that boat. Um, We heard about it, but it hadn't really impacted us. And anything that you kind of watched on the news, especially as it pertained to America, was, you know, that we had very minimal cases and, you know, nobody really expected it coming. And again, I was one of those folks. Uh, I, I I will not forget the week before everything really kind of started going crazy, and that was, I believe, the week of March, March 9th, the week of March 9th is when uh, this became real. We had a company lunch on March 6th, and we were all at a sushi place celebrating um, an accomplishment at the business, and the conversation of coronavirus came up. And stupidly, I was one of the people saying, this is not nearly as serious as everybody's making it out to be. This is, you know, another thing. We've had viruses in the past. And that was March 6th. I decided to take a full week off, which is the first full five day, five business day week I've taken off uh, maybe ever uh, since I can remember to go on spring break with my family. And I was uh, we had a great time and was really looking forward to it. And we get there on a Saturday, March 7th. We actually are talking. We go to play golf and we're talking to one of the head people at the club and just made a joke about what happens if the the club shuts down. And even at that point, the, the gentleman at the club kind of laughed it off. Uh, by Tuesday, March 10th, we got an email notification that the club would be shutting down by that Friday the 13th through the remainder of the season. On March 11th, which is a Wednesday, is when the NBA closed. That to me was the moment in time, you know, you'll kind of never forget was uh, we were sitting watching TV and got news that, that the NBA had shut down. And basically at that point, everything that I had kind of not taken seriously became really, really real in that moment. I remember looking uh, to my wife who was sitting next to me and just saying, uh, I think this is going to be bigger than anything uh, we could ever expect it to be. March 12th, the PGA Tour plays their first round of the Players' Championship. Okay, maybe, you know, the NBA shut down, but they're still playing. Uh, By that evening, they discussed uh, there would be no spectators allowed by Friday. Um, An hour later, they canceled the tournament. An hour later, they then canceled the next six PGA tournaments up until the Masters, I believe. And then Friday, March 13th, uh, the Masters uh, announced that they would be postponing the Masters for this year. And so between the NBA uh, getting shut down and then the Masters being postponed, even with all the tournaments that had been postponed, I thought there's no way the Masters would be shut down. The last time a, an event like that was delayed or shut down was in World War II. As most listeners know, I'm a big golfer. And when that news came out, that was, again, a, a pivotal moment that I knew we were dealing with something uh, much larger than we could even fathom. So, you know, March 6th, I'm joking about it. And by March 13th, uh, I started to understand that the world was about to change in a drastic way. Uh, Flew back into town on the 15th of Sunday and called a meeting with my partner, Jason. And we met for six or seven hours and 
you know, at the time, you know, we felt like we were getting in front of it. Um, it's it's actually interesting to look at the notes we took from that meeting, but from that point forward, it became really real. And then everything kind of since then has just been a progression of news and world-changing events. And we're now sitting here at April 1st, two and a half weeks later, and the world is a completely different place. Uh, we are living in a world that you don't read about in business books. There's no point in history we can look back to on the playbook of how to get through this. Uh, the government is um, having to shut down uh, businesses. People are staying at home. Uh, social distancing is the, the word you hear every day. People are just making decisions that even three weeks ago seemed almost impossible. So all that to be said, there was probably a two or three day window uh, where it was all settling in and uh, being vulnerable. I'll say those were not the three of my best days, but by by March 20th, it kind of settled into what, that we were in for a, a new ride and we were going to have to adjust and you know do the right things to make this total tragedy, find the silver lining in it and come out the other side of this kind of as a better person, a better husband, a better father, and a better Fort Capital. And that's kind of the mentality we've had. Having said that, there's there's a lot of uh, data that keeps coming out. I still think it will get much worse before it gets better. There's a lot of speculation on what the recovery will look like, what it won't look like. And nobody has a crystal ball, and we don't know. And the government is uh, doing things that, again, has never been done. There's no playbook for it. So it'll be interesting. So I will kind of start by just going uh, in no particular order. And I'm sorry if some of this is random. Just put as many notes as I could uh, over the last two days to talk about. So... Essentially, right now, uh, we're living in a zero-demand world, and what I mean by that is uh, the 80% of America's GDP is based on the consumer spending money. Uh, that is, in every, you know, on meals, on plane tickets, on hotels, on entertainment, on food. I mean, name it. America is built to consume, and fortunately, unfortunately, it's been built to consume often on credit uh, with money that some people uh, don't have. People spread themselves thin. And so you've had this economy that has been humming for the last 11 years, and it's been fully kind of priced in that people will spend a lot of money. And that's not only the engine that keeps America going, but a lot of countries around the globe depend on America buying their products, you know, traveling to their areas trade and commerce. And, and that's basically shut down um, unless you are providing essentials uh, and essentials being things that keep you alive and healthy. So, you know, I'm sure anybody listening can already uh, look at their bank account or credit card statement this month compared to last month. And I would imagine spending is, you know, been totally reduced. So we're living in a zero demand world. Uh, the capital markets uh, for real estate uh, really for any industry, but I'll keep with real estate, the capital markets, especially the debt and lending market is basically frozen right now. Um, if you are trying to get a new loan for a new project, it's virtually um, impossible unless you are probably one of the big REITs. But if you are a, uh, a small, medium, private business looking for a new loan to acquire something or a, a new loan to develop something, it's pretty much on pause right now. And any kind of indication of when that will end is just kind of every everybody says 60 to 90 days. And for how long they keep saying 60 to 90 days is yet to be known. But um, it's basically frozen. You continue to hear that, you know, rates are at historic lows. So that should be a really good thing. Well, the way it works is there, you know, the the treasury rate is set and then there's a risk spread above it. So the treasury rate's half a percent and the risk spread is 300 basis points. That means the average borrower could get a loan at 3.5%. Well, banks and lenders are starting to price in that risk, and that spread has grown. And so even though we read that interest rates are at an all-time low and you should take advantage of those low rates, uh, the spread is now closer to that same loan that you could get at 3.5%. 
uh, assuming you could even get the loan, is now at four and a half to five percent today. So what does that mean? It means uh, if a buyer was buying your property or looking at your property and their performance had their debt at three and a half percent, and now they're having to reprice that uh, at a 5% loan means their debt service is higher, which means they're not going to have as much cash flow, which means they can't pay you as much. So, so basically, the, the transaction world of real estate has basically come to a halt. If you're not paying all cash or have some type of revolving line of credit that's already guaranteed that doesn't require appraisals and bank approvals, you're not going to be transacting. And really, the the market is on hold anyway because because nothing's transacting it's hard to put a value on anything um what tenants will pay rent next month which won't what is you know the future set of cash flow is going to look like it's we're living in a world where it is so hard to see how this plays out that nobody uh wants to buy anything anyway unless it is something super distressed and we're only 3 weeks into this and we're already seeing some signs of distress but i think it's still early and the, you know, the blood is uh, not fully in the streets yet. So you might see more transaction going on maybe at the end of Q2, Q3, but that again will be with buyers that have some type of pre-committed uh, capital or cash um, until banks open back up. My worry is that even when banks open back up, the process by which to get loans approved and, uh, and appraised and how an appraiser is going to appraise a project uh, that will take a while to kind of find a new equilibrium. And so even though banks are willing to lend again, you might see a lag in them actually making loans, uh, you know, as, as things adjust. The only transactions that I have kind of heard that are continuing on are ones that the buyer was already very pregnant in the deal, had hard earnest money up, um, and was very close to closing. And you're still seeing, a, I've heard of a ton of those. I know we've experienced it twice already. Uh, a contract get dropped within days of closing, even though we were 90 days under contract with hard money. But the ones that you are still seeing, if they are getting done, usually fit that profile. If it was something that was in the early stages of a buy or you know LOIs are being traded, it's basically been put on hold. Again, we're, we're now in this world where you read headlines every day and uh, what tenants are going to pay rent, which aren't. Um, obviously, retailers are getting crushed. But you've, so, you've also seen signals coming out from big companies like Subway and Cheesecake Factory and Mattress Firm who are just making kind of nationwide statements that they just don't plan to pay rent in April. I understand why they wouldn't, but for a big big companies like that, it sends a very strong message. And it's... You know, it's created a world where, again, 30 days ago, it wasn't an option if you paid your rent or not. And now the conversation is, you know, will you pay or won't you? And it creates a really big debacle um, because if the government shuts your business down, um, then how can you how can you pay rent? And if you can't pay rent, then an owner can't make a bank payment. And if you can't make a bank payment, the, the bank's looking now to the government saying you kind of created the mess. And so there's this chain reaction. And, you know, I'm going to do another one of these in 30 days. I think the implications of this could have a domino effect that could be uh, greater than the Great Depression with regards to a total collapse. Um, if tenants feel okay not paying rent and landlords are now, you know, put in a situation to either stand firm that they must pay rent or they will basically shut them down. Uh, you create really ill will between the landlord tenant. If the bank is not willing to give the landlord any type of relief on a bank payment, uh, you get a lot of ill will there. And if the government's not willing to step up and take care of the damage, you just have a lot of ill will. And so, you know, rent's due today. It's April 1st. Um, and my bank payments due today. And while we have unbelievable empathy and are looking out for our tenants and are negotiating relief on a case-by-case basis, it just continues to put um, everybody in a really tough spot. And it's only April. I think anybody in the industry is really saying, let's wait and see what May rent looks like. That'll be the bigger signal of how much damage has been done and again, since it's only been three weeks, folks probably have enough resources to pay um, April, unless you're in 
a couple of industries, which I'll get into shortly. Um, but May, you've now run really low on cash and it becomes a bigger um, issue. So May 1 will be kind of the day of reckoning and we'll see what happens over the next 30 days. But again, as you think about what headlines could be is more headlines of certain tenants not paying rent, uh, you know, landlords starting to default on bank loans, and it really creates a chain reaction. And again, the, this happened at the top of the biggest bull cycle ever. And so the prices and valuations of properties have been at all-time highs. The debt uh, on these properties are at all-time highs. Again, we're priced into the economy that there's mass consumption and mass valuation. And the economy, at, at the rate that we were at 30 days ago, needs a lot of activity going on to support those levels. We can have a little chat later in the episode about whether, even after this is over, how long it will take for America to kind of start consuming again at the rate that they are. I, I firmly believe that the shell shock from all this, um, we're going to have a lot more savers in this country, um, a lot more people that are not willing to spend that extra dollar on something they don't need for quite some time until some of this wears off. And so to say that you know there's going to be this great rebound in the third quarter or fourth quarter, I'm not saying the market wouldn't bounce back. It's just hard for me to believe that the consumer appetite uh, will be the same as it was. So you know, bouncing back from where we're at now, you know, just people starting to get out and about will be considered a bounce back. But to say we would be, you know, where we were in late February, early March, I, I, I have a, a hard time uh, seeing that. But I'm sure there's, uh, you know, I, that doesn't mean it's right. It's just how we're thinking about it. Tom Barrick, the CEO of Colony Capital, wrote a good white paper. Um, if you want to read a 13-page paper on kind of the domino effect I mentioned below and how it cascades and create could create a whole new crisis within a crisis, well, I highly recommend you reading it. Good news is most banks, uh, certainly that we've talked to and, and those that I've talked to other owners and their lenders, uh, most banks, I would almost say at this point, all banks are providing relief to landlords. Um, again, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. Each deal is different. But if you are working with a bank that's not willing to budge at all, I would say uh, try harder because uh, we have not, uh, have not come across that yet. Again, banks are relationships too. Um, my advice would be to be talking, over-communicating, telling them news as you're getting it, and be a borrower that, uh, you know, if you're already a great borrower, try and become an even better borrower. And if that means, you know, not making your payment, the the, the way you make up for that is over communicating, uh, over transparency, and continuing to work on it. Again, it's a relationship business, and it will go in a really long way. Um, another kind of data point that I think about is, you know, property taxes, especially in a state like Texas. Um, they are they're a big part of each. Uh, the operating expenses of a, of a piece of real estate property taxes are high in Texas because we don't have an income tax. And property taxes pay for a lot of the city, uh, city's needs. Well, um, if properties are going to be devalued from all this, then there's going to be kind of a reset as to what the property values are. And so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts cities because that is a large source of their revenue. Um, that is in jeopardy if real estate valuations go down. Kind of going through some asset classes, um, the hotel industry, it is just utter chaos. And uh, it's just really sad, to be honest with you. Um, hotels are getting absolutely crushed. Occupancies at most hotels are hovering between zero and 10% occupancy. Again, if you're in a hotel like in a in a really dense urban area like New York, you're at zero. If you're out in the suburbs or not in as dense of an area, you might be lucky to be at 10 or maybe a little bit above. Uh, I've talked to some landlords that by uh, in May, they currently are showing zero bookings. So you're seeing a lot of furlough laying off um, hotels that are kind of mothballing, meaning they're shutting down their hotels to bare bones and hoping to to uh, hang around long enough for when things open back up. Again, hearing, again, just uh, lenders and uh, for hotels are looking at uh, relief anywhere from six to nine months. 
the the travel and leisure industry makes up 20% of America's GDP and uh, virtually it's at zero right now. And so when you you know, you're trying to look back at a point in time, the the easiest for a lot of folks to look back to is 08 and 09. Well, 08 and 09 is a blip on the radar compared to what we're experiencing now. In 08 and 09, people were still living a normal life from the standpoint of, you know, getting on a plane. Maybe they weren't traveling as much, but prices for planes had certainly gone down. Maybe they weren't sitting in, you know, uh, a first class seat. They were sitting in coach or they were at hotels and, you know, maybe they weren't staying as many nights, but they weren't staying in the nicer room. They were budgeting for a lower room, but there was still activity. I mean, you still saw hotels occupied between, you know, 40 to 60%, even in 08 and 09. Um, this is just totally different. It's literally zero. And we've gone from the highest point of the economy in American history to three weeks later, literally at zero. And so it's just absolutely crazy. Um, you know, I, I do wonder in, in in wake of this, the the way that hotels have been underwritten in the past. Clearly, I don't think if, if everybody is going to use uh, this period of time in their risk assumptions and their modeling of things, uh, you probably would never buy an asset again because a period in time like this is just where, where you literally are predicting no revenue or no demand. Uh, you can't really just bet on that to happen all the time. Having said that with hotels, in particular, and probably retail, you start wondering, you know, are the same underwriting standards of the past going to be good going forward? Are they going to have to, you know, require more reserves? Are they going to, you know, require you to model more vacancy? Who knows? But for the asset classes that are getting hit the hardest, I, I often think, what will underwriting standards look like going forward? In the kind of the hotel industry, and this is something I've been reading about the last couple of days uh, that really wasn't on my radar, but makes a lot of sense, Airbnb. We now live in a country where uh, hundreds of thousands of people have taken out mortgages to buy single family homes or Airbnb rental type properties. And so they don't live in them. It's purely an investment. They, you know, there's people in the country now that have 50 to 100 properties that they purely run as Airbnbs. They're they're like a hotel operator basically, um, and these are owned by individuals. These are not owned by the 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 big corporate giants. And so you think about the guy that owns 50 homes right now that are all purpose for Airbnb, which Airbnb has gone to virtually zero as well. Um, it acts like the hotel industry. And now you have kind of, quote unquote, the little guy that has 50 mortgage payments coming due and is totally vacant and doesn't have time, nor will the 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 numbers work to just rent it out as a typical rental property. An Airbnb property makes a lot more revenue. It obviously has more risk, but to just say, oh, we'll just go lease it to a family. One, it takes time to do that. So you're looking at, you know, 60 to 90 days, especially when nobody's out renting right now. But two, even if you do, you might be in situations where you're not covering debt service. And so uh, there's hundreds of thousands of people that own Airbnbs um, that are all vacant right now. So you think about it from can they pay their note? But then you think about, OK, well, now there's hundreds of thousands of vacancies available in the market. So the price for an Airbnb has plummeted. So even when it comes back, uh, the ability to get kind of those prices back to where you were renting them, you know, months ago is likely going to be a slow lag as it takes time to uh, to fill those, those vacancies. Same thing with a hotel. So now you have all these vacant hotels, all these vacant Airbnbs, Again, a bounce back to levels we were 30 days ago assumes we just kind of open back up the world and everybody starts charging what they were charging before. And that just doesn't happen that way. There's so much vacancy to fill up. There's so much consumer confidence that needs to come back. You, you think that Airbnb could be at the forefront of almost a residential mortgage crisis. Um, it could be the leader because we now have hundreds of thousands of people that are not going to be able to cover their mortgage unless they've reserved cash. Um, for very long and are depending on leasing these back out soon. So again, it was just kind of a unique uh, look at things. You know, you don't really think about it, but Airbnb's impact on uh, this uh, global pandemic is huge. And I'll be reading more about how this plays out. Retail, um, you know, whether you've been in real estate or not, if, as long as you 
you know, not been living in a hole, you probably hear more about retail than anything. Again, it's just breathtaking to hear uh, what has happened in retail, where essentially in every major city in the country, you cannot open restaurants, bars, movie theaters, anything that's not deemed essential. And so retailers are are being asked to be shut down by the government. Um, the restaurant industry, which notoriously lives kind of month to month and very rarely has more than 27 days of cash, some say 16, some say 27, are furloughing or laying off almost everybody. They are trying to work on kind of food delivery uh, as a as a some source of revenue, but it's absolutely they're absolutely getting crushed. You know, you hear things like, "Yeah, there's government relief, but how many of these restaurants will actually ever open back up again?" Um, and I read something yesterday. They they think there will be 120,000 restaurants. Uh, that have already kind of waved the white flag and said that they likely will not open up again. Um, so retail in general is is another asset class that's at the higher end of the risk spectrum. Um, talked on a call the other day with major retail landlords around the country, and I was just listening in on a 1,500-person call and just hearing statistics of some of the biggest landlords in the country that have 900 to 1,000 retail tenants and are expecting six to 700 of them to not pay rent or ask for some type of relief this month. Um, again, all those people paying rent just 30 days ago and now 70% can't pay rent. So um, a lot will happen in retail. Um, it, it is catastrophic in that environment. Um, how quickly the retailers open back up and get going is yet to be seen, but I think you will see a lot more sublease space and vacancy and kind of carnage in retail. And so the thing I'll be just th the thing that I think about is when you have that much available space come back out again, similar to the hotel industry is, are you almost going a decade back and, and restarting where rents were, you know, 10 years ago? Because there will be great locations now that need to get subleased. It'll take a while for all that to fill back up before you see some type of normalcy in rates. And so between retail um, and hotel, it is kind of the hardest hit um, across the board. Within retail, there's single tenant triple net assets, which have always been looked at as bulletproof, 15-year leases with credit tenants. Um, you know, they're selling at really low cap rates. You're still seeing uh, more life in those than any of them, but even some of those tenants are now starting to show uh, signs of weakness. And so, what was once considered one of the most bulletproof real estate investments will now be back up in jeopardy. But again, uh, you see the Dollar Generals, the 7-Elevens, things like that. Those things will probably become even stronger. Um, those tenants are truly pandemic-proof because they sell essential items and uh, shutting those down is like the absolute last thing you have to do. And so you might see more value given to those tenants. So if you own a bunch of Dollar Generals or 7-Elevens or things like that, uh, Walgreens, CVSs, um, it might get better. Uh, multifamily, Class B and Class C has been seen as kind of the leader of this last bull cycle across all real estate assets. You've seen uh, most of the, you've seen the, the most increase in returns there. Again, you're offering an affordable housing unit to a growing population. Um, and you can also finance these properties with government financing that offers really great terms. They offer long amortizations uh, up to 30 years, low rates, uh, non-recourse, higher leverage. Um, and so it's made for a great industry to be in, especially as rates continue to go down. The, the good news for this type of industry, for, for you know anything that requires a government-backed loan, uh, the government is still lending, um, especially refinancing stuff that's already owned. Um, but I'm still hearing that if you're you're needing a new loan to buy something, uh, the government is not kind of wavering. It might take a little longer um, and a little more scrutiny, but they are still open for business. Uh, the only thing for Class B and C is a lot of those types of units are occupied by the same folks getting laid off by the millions that are service workers. And so, again, you'll see in April and then May uh, how many of those tenants continue to pay rent. Um, and so, the we'll see. Class A, I think, will be a little, uh, will be hit less hard just because the demographic probably has 
um, you know, more of uh, more savings, um, not always, but more savings or maybe uh, a job that uh, they have not been laid off from yet. So we'll be looking to see how Class A does. Having said that, uh, Class A's issues um, in the shorter term, which were even before this, are just the amount of supply that continues to come online. Um, if you're in lease up uh, for one of these, um, it will be tough. It's already been concession warfare. And in general, just like most things, since people are quarantined at home right now, uh, the only folks I'm talking to that are signing apartment leases right now are doing them through virtual tours. We actually own a building here in Fort Worth. We signed two leases last week through a virtual tour. But in general, it's still very tough. Yeah, I think the the other uh, thing would just be to say, um, given that the the lending and debt markets are um, are shaky right now, uh, buying a home might become tougher. And anybody that was planning on buying maybe this year or next year, maybe is kind of rethinking that decision, uh, putting it on pause. And so you could see a whole new wave of people that were getting out of the multifamily living area kind of go back into it. So that, that could be some positive news uh, that you see a whole new wave of demand in multifamily, uh, which would impact single family negatively, but it could be a positive for uh, multifamily. Um, office, um, you know, office is, everything's affected right now. Uh, so there's nobody that's bulletproof. Office, uh, again, depending on what type of office you own, you'll be more impacted than others. I think the long-term thing to think about is, you know, 60 days of people working remote um, and doing things outside of the office, um, especially if the company does well during those periods, you know, you really start to ask yourself the question is like, what is the true need of the office? Not that there needs to be no office, but does it need to be as big and have as many conference rooms? And does everybody need to show up to it every day? Um, again, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's not something I'm focused highly on, but it is what you're talking a lot about is when people come back, uh, will they be looking at, you know, leasing as much office space, all things considered from the sense of, you know, we don't really need it all. We, we can actually do a lot better in, in less office space just because we've learned how to be more remote and more agile. Um, on top of, again, just tenants that might be laying off people or, or uh, are shrinking, you might see uh, sublease space start to come up as, as people start getting back to work. And, you know, the more sublease space available, that, that hurts, uh, you know, rents in the short term as that sublease gets filled up. So, um, again, you could say that for a lot of things, but that's what I'm thinking about in office. Um, the last thing, Again, if, if you own a Class A office building with a, you know, a bulletproof credit tenant like Facebook, you're probably doing okay. You know, but again, if you own Class B and C office buildings with smaller businesses, you're, you're facing not the same challenges as retail because people can still you know, go to work. Uh, more businesses are able to go to work that are in an office environment than in a retail environment, but you're still going to see people uh, hurting and suffering. Um, and people that are, you know, that were looking at Class A because things were going really well and they were going to pay up for a nicer space, you, you know, you might see them resettle back into a Class A minus or Class B plus building, which I think could be an effect on just everything you could think of, not just real estate. Uh, as we come out of this, is the uh, again that that need to consume and that need to have the nicest thing and that need to keep, you know, pressing the needle. Uh, you're going to see a lot of folks come out of this way more conservative than they were before. And so the priciest things in the world, it my, it's my opinion, those will be the last kind of things to come back. Uh, people will start with, you know, continuing to buy their essentials and start going to their local restaurants and probably spend more money on things at home and, you know, continue to kind of work their way back out to the things they used to do. But if you're you know, if if you were stretching to have the nicer hotel room 30 days ago, you're probably not stretching to do that again when this thing starts back up. So the things that are true luxuries that are not anywhere near an essential in life um, will take a back seat. And so how that works in real estate is asset classes that offer, you know, class double A or class A or, you know, you're able to keep moving up the food chain as you do better. You might see people stay put or 
take a few more years and um, not be as interested in kind of the nicer stuff, but staying more conservative. So we'll see. Uh, industrial, you know, I'm not going to try and be biased here. Uh, we are large investors in industrial. But I think, um, you know, if you read anything or you're talking to people, industrial and uh, multifamily are very likely to be the strongest asset classes to come out of this. You can make an argument industrial could come out of this um, even hotter than multifamily for the next cycle. Tenants that populate these properties are traditionally the essential businesses that are uh, running a lot of this um, economy. If you start seeing manufacturing and things like that come back into the USA after this, they're going to be in industrial buildings. Um, a lot of your e-commerce is already happening in industrial buildings. Um, as the world continues to uh, de depend on that last mile delivery, whether it be from Amazon or you're just ordering from a restaurant, uh, those Class B industrial buildings that we've been purchased are uh, they're in urban environments surrounded by uh, rooftops. So their location is critical. And I think, you know, especially Class B, they it's what we've been saying in the years past. It's the cheapest type of property that you can go rent right now. The rents are really low, yet the buildings are functional. They have 16, you know, 16 to 22 foot ceilings. They have large uh, parking fields. Um, they're in moderately good locations. And I think you will continue to see people rethink how these properties could be used. I mean, I literally told our team the other day, uh, based on the cost that it would cost us, we could go move into a space twice the size, deck it out, make it really cool, have tons of parking, you know, put up a basketball hoop in the back because there's so much pavement and offer a cool office at half the price. And so I just think you'll see a lot of people go, this stuff is cheap. It offers a lot of space. It offers a lot of room. It offers a lot of parking. It's in good locations. It might not be, you know, on this corner of Maine and Maine, but you're also paying significantly less. So I think you'll see a lot of folks that maybe weren't in, you know, weren't occupying Class B industrial type properties. Uh, take a look at it. Uh, people get really inventive uh, during times like this, and so. Um, it's hard to be inventive of a $700 a foot class A building in uptown Dallas. It kind of is what it is, but it's really easy to get inventive on a, a $50 a foot building on 20 acres with a ton of parking that's, you know, two miles from uptown Dallas. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of what comes of that. Um, and again, our, our current tenants um, although rent is a, is a, is big in everybody's PL, just the, the cost of this space is just not near as high, um, as some other buildings. So even tenants that need relief, again, it's not like they're, they've gone and paid for a, you know, 30 or $40 a foot building They're Again, they're occupying buildings. They're paying anywhere from four to 10 bucks. So the, the actual all dollar amount is, is much less. And this whole thing, uh, and the world was already headed in this direction, it's going to accelerate is you're going to see a lot more things being done through e-commerce and through delivery. And a lot of the methods by which we'll consume will require more industrial buildings to be built. And the good news for Class B is even in a, a world like this, you still can't rebuild it. Uh, you can't find the land that's large enough. You can't do it infill. You can't build it cost effectively. And so there will continue to be no new supply. And as more, if I'm right, that more tenants learn how to uh, reposition this and use it in different ways, uh, the supply will, will start shrinking even quicker uh, for true industrial users. So doesn't mean we're bulletproof. We, we certainly are going to have our, uh, our fair share of challenges you know, in the shorter term. But long term, um, I really think you see Class B and, and Class A industrial be resilient. And I think you also see a lot of folks that had maybe been investing in retail or, or hotels or some of the other risky asset classes look at industrial uh, and multifamily as almost a flight to safety. And so when the capital markets open back up, when capital starts being invested again, I think we'll be at the top of the list not only for the folks who are in it, but for folks looking to pivot and get in something that they feel like is safer. So if an asset like industrial or multifamily can prove itself through a pandemic like this, um, it shows enormous amounts of resiliency. So we're continuing to bet, bet big on it. Again, the next 90, 120 days, six months um, might not look 
you know, great, but that's for everybody. But I think our recovery will be much quicker. Uh, senior housing, you know, again, the demand is huge. Obviously, in the pandemic moment, it's a risk because seniors are, are the most susceptible to COVID. But long term, um, the, the only deal I've heard that sold in the last two weeks was a senior housing facility last Friday. Uh, they are much needed. Boomers are continuing to get older and retire, and the demand is fundamentally baked in. So short term, you might see some issues if you're just developed a brand new facility and you're trying to lease it up right now. Uh, that's probably the hardest lease up in the world to do, uh, especially because older demographics are quarantining harder than others. And a lot of times uh, not as technology savvy. And so they're not doing remote tours or, or uh, cyber tours through uh, lease up. So um, haven't talked to anybody in a lease up right now, uh, but that would just be my guess. Student housing, I don't have a whole lot. Uh, I haven't spent a ton of time on it. Yeah, I think the only thing I've I've talked to a couple student housing people is uh, tenants paying rent uh, for the spring semester of 2020 when they are being told to leave the school. Um, I think it's a different scenario if the school owns the student housing versus privately held student housing. Uh, good news there is most students uh, guarantee their leases from their parents. Um, again, though, if their parents are in a tough situation, that that becomes uh, less risky. But most of the people I've talked to said they they. Uh, expect their students to continue paying through the rest of the year. So we'll see. The not going to make this about uh, the future of universities and campuses, but back to the theme of uh, students are spending a whole semester learning from home. This is another, that's another part of the world that you might see a, a big shift as people really start thinking hard about the, the taking a loan and the high loan that they take to go to these uh, universities. Um, and look more towards online options that are much more affordable. But uh, I'm not an expert on that, but it's something I think you might see from this. There is, quote unquote, a lot of capital on the sidelines. There's been a lot of funds raised um, in the last couple of years. Uh, but again, the, the majority of it is just kind of staying patient unless they're seeing super distressed opportunities. And those just aren't here yet. It's only been three weeks. Uh, nobody really knows how to put a value on anything. And until anybody really has some sense of confidence that some light at the end of the tunnel of some normalcy, it's really hard to transact, even if you have a lot of money, unless you start finding true deals like what you saw in 08 and 09, uh, stuff, you know, just throwing out round numbers that was selling for 100 a foot that you're now picking up for 25 or 30 a foot. Y you know, your, your basis is so low, you might not worry about the credit risk of the tenant or if the tenant's going to pay, you're just buying something that... Um, you're buying super cheap and you might have more staying power if it stays vacant for a while, but those deals just aren't there yet. The only kind of super distressed stuff that I've even heard about has been in the last two or three days, and those are loan portfolios tied to hotels. So hotels, you know, hotels that are going bankrupt, the opportunity is to buy uh, the loan portfolio uh, at distressed prices and become the new lender to those hotels. So that was the first signal um, of anybody that's gotten kind of giddy about a true distress deal. Uh, development. Um, if you're already under development or construction, things continue to move forward. Um, if you have your permit, you're moving forward. Construction's been deemed essential. Uh, you're starting to see in the bigger cities, Boston, New York, they've started to halt construction. But in Texas, it's still going. Uh, we have contractors out right now um, for some of our projects. Um, if you are not under construction or you have not, you have not gotten a permit or you haven't received your financing yet, just like everything else that's on hold, it might end up being a blessing because I think construction costs are going to adjust, but the, the development world is either if you're already underway, you're full steam ahead. If you're not, you're pausing, um, and again, it's really hard to project the world in two years. So if you're a developer, especially, you know, you've underwritten where rents will be in two years when your building's built. Um, you have underwritten your construction costs, which are likely to dramatically change. You have underwritten all these projections and development, you know, is a longer cycle. It continues to get longer uh, as time goes by. And so I expect those will be for projects that are on hold will be, uh, I'm not saying tougher to get going, but there's a lot of assumptions you got to rethink. And I think a lot of the banks are, are going to be saying, we need to, you know, rethink these, 
development projections. And so the things you'll you'll look for is again, you know, what can you realistically expect in rents? You can adjust those down. Can you expect construction costs to be less? You can adjust those down. Are land prices going to have to give? Yes. So it's not that you can't get them done. There's just there's things that are probably going to have to change to get more kind of uh, settled in on projected value two years after starting construction. Uh, construction, I kind of said, still deemed essential in most cities. It's going. I think you could see the cost go down as development slows and uh, contractors that are fully staffed begin, you know, that have been, it's been a contractor's world the last four or five, six years. Uh, you could see that shift uh, where it's back to a builder, a developer world where they have more uh, negotiating power. I think you'll see a ton of innovation in the construction industry uh, start to show itself. Now's a good time. Construction costs continue to get higher and higher. And we still, in a lot of ways, do things like we've done them for 100 years. And so a time like this will will put pressure on everybody to find ways to save costs. And the biggest costs a lot of folks have are in their construction. And so innovative materials, uh, more modular building, more things that happen in controlled environments and not on site. Um, you know, you think of a project in Texas. We at once had a project. We were supposed to pour the concrete on a Monday. The concrete company couldn't show up. They pushed it to Wednesday. Tuesday, it rained harder than I've you know ever seen it, and it continued to rain periodically for the next three months to where the ground could never get in a position that we could pour. And so missing that one Monday, we set our uh, project back three months. We still had to pay the bank interest. We had to push off other contractors that were scheduled to go. And by the time they were ready to come back, the market was better. So their contracts were different or the price of steel had gone up. And so that missing that one day in development cost us a lot of money. Um, and I don't think people often think about that, but the the implications are huge. It screws up people's schedules and, and everything. And so every day costs money. Um, again, when I say building in controlled environments, there's just so many things you can do under a roof and get done that don't that don't take risk of the weather outside. And so, again, I just think you'll see kind of more stuff there. Um, and 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 the argument for uh, for costs going up in the the shorter term would just be, yeah, there might be contractors that are uh, in the short term maybe going out of business, but you could see supply chains. Uh, getting totally disrupted and it, the, to get materials takes longer. You have to pay more for them to get them sooner. Uh, I talked to a home builder the other day. He's tile that he can usually get in two weeks is now two months on back order. Um, and until we're back to full going, uh, it'll be more important to get food and water and things like that in the American hands than terracotta tile from Italy. So that's where you could see costs go up in the short term. Um, so we'll see. Technology and real estate has been a uh, growing sector. Um, real estate it traditionally is archaic. It takes a long, um, it is so far behind the rest of the world in a lot of ways. Uh, back to the pressure to push down costs, I think you see a lot of innovation happen in technology. Uh, things just accelerate quicker, not that they weren't already on their way um, as uh, this pandemic goes and, and you start looking for how to operate, cut expense, be more efficient. And so I won't spend a lot of time on what technology I think will get better. That might be its own thing, but I, I'm excited to see what happens uh, in technology throughout all this. Uh, okay, so I've kind of gone through just what I'm seeing out in the industry. I probably missed a lot, but that's just kind of the things that, that we have been thinking about you know, it's it's just a it's a very very interesting situation. Um, you know, somebody said today, and it, it sounds it sounds harsh, but you know, it, you really think about it is, uh, you know, right now the tenants are being shut down by the government, and it seems like the first kind of buzzword is well, don't pay rent or get rent relief, and that's all good and well, but the 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 landlord still has to make a bank payment. That doesn't go away. And when you really think from a business standpoint, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, we're working with our tenants. So this isn't really an argument. It's just something to think about is uh, that business has, maybe they have personal funds, they have credit cards, uh, they can go to a bank for a loan, um, they can go to family for money, they can go to all these different sources that might have some money. 
why does the landlord have to be the liquidity provider? Because when the, the, the lender, when the landlord is not collecting rent, it's basically saying, I know you have all those options and maybe you don't, but have you exhausted all of those options for your rent money before just defaulting to the landlord immediately? And, you know, it's easy and it's nice to say, well, we'll be a good landlord, but if this continues, you basically put the landlord in the position of being the liquidity for America, and that can't last. Um, then it ripples into the bank and then the bank to the government and everything else. So um, I think the conversation is going to get tougher on rent relief as we go. Um, again, it's only in April. It's the nice thing to do. We're all in shock. But if the months go by, you're going to see a lot of landlords saying, I'm not going to be your source of liquidity unless the government has now backstopped me, which we haven't heard that yet. Hopefully in the next 30 days when I do this again, that's changed. I'm expecting some type of information from the government or from Trump or something on his thoughts on how this impacts real estate. The The commercial mortgage market is $3 trillion. Um, you know, Real estate is owned by debt. And when tenants are being told they don't have to pay rent, you have a catastrophic issue if real estate can't be valued, defaults start happening, landlords can't pay rent, banks are now under stress, and that doesn't take very long. Again, read Tom Barrick's white paper of Colony Capital. Uh, Google Tom Barrick white paper, and it does a great job of explaining it. All right, so all that's been going on. Um, that's what we've been hearing. I've talked to I've talked to more people in the last three weeks than I have probably in the last three years. Um, and it's been great under the circumstances. I've learned so much. People have shared so much. There's no secrets. Everybody's trying to help everybody. We're all in it together. And it's been awesome. So thank you to everybody that I've talked to. I'm excited to do this again in 30 days and see where the world is. I appreciate you listening to me rant. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.